Hi, Martine. Hi, Alahe. So we don't usually get to speak to each other like this. Yeah, that's the weird thing about being co-hosts is that it's like when you're on the podcast, I'm off the podcast working on other things. When I'm on, you're off doing your other job covering media. And so we actually don't like get to be together on mic with any frequency. Yeah. And that's actually why we are here together today, because you have some news about how you've been spending your time off off the Post Reports mic. Yes. Right now, I'm working on an investigative podcast that is coming out later this year. This is a show about a mystery, a mystery that I kind of uh, essentially became obsessed with a couple years ago. And since then, I've been trying to solve this mystery. Now, I've pulled a couple other producers from our team to help me solve this mystery. We are filing all these freedom of information requests. We are tracking people down, making phone calls, reading these documents. It's a whole big thing. Yeah, I'm picking up on the the vibe here that you can't tell us too much about it and that also it just requires a, a lot of reporting to, to do. Yeah, soon I will be able to say more uh, once we're a little bit closer to publishing. Um, but to your point about the work part of this, that is the other part of this announcement. Because of this podcast, um, getting ready to publish it, I am going to be stepping away from Post Reports for the next few months um, and essentially like through the end of the summer. And if you're listening to this and you're freaking out because you love Martine (laughs) and you can't bear the thought of not hearing her every day for a few months, I totally understand. I also love Martine. I love hearing you on, on the podcast, Martine. But I think this is all going to be worth it for what you're making. And also... I'm really humbled and excited to be able to to keep the host chair warm for you and to yes. be on the mic more and more and also to welcome some of our other newsroom colleagues, some new voices, some familiar voices, um, and bringing all these different perspectives for the benefit of all of our listeners. I, I'm going to love listening. I will be the most loyal Post Reports listener every evening, and I just can't wait to hear all of the incredible stories we have in store um, for the next few months. It's going to be great. All right. And here's today's show. These local Republican Party meetings are often a good place to kind of take the temperature of activists, and there's often like a lot of drama. That's Isaac Arnstorf. He's a national political reporter for The Post. And lately, Isaac has been going around the country looking into a debate among Republican voters of how to feel about Donald Trump as he runs for president again. Good evening, everyone. Kurt Tucker, chairman of the Saginaw County Republican Party. And uh, I call this In Saginaw County, County, Michigan in particular, there was a, a group of uh, very pro-Trump people who had taken over the party. And then at the county convention uh, a few weeks ago, they got overtaken by a group that was still identified as pro-Trump, but like less pro-Trump. <laughs> And got very tense. Are there any anybody that that claims to be a real Republican in this room and you're talking over everybody? Come on. You are I resent being called that type of Republican. What Isaac saw at this meeting was a microcosm of a drama he was seeing play out all over the country. 
of a power struggle within the base of the Republican Party, between the diehard Trump supporters and those people who really like Trump and his style of politics, but think it might be time to move on. Over the last several months, Isaac and our colleagues traveled to five swing states, states that decided the last two presidential elections and that will probably decide the 2024 election. Well, we wanted to get beyond, you know, what we can see in poll results that we're familiar with or, you know, what Republican elected officials are telling us about their sense of things or what, you know, Republican strategists are telling us. And we really wanted to go direct to the source and try to connect with the actual voters as much as we could. You know, there's a saying in politics uh, that Washington is always the last to find out. So uh, we wanted to actually go out into the country and find out for ourselves. They did more than 150 interviews. They spoke with as many past Trump voters as they could find, those who voted for him in 2016 and 2020. And what Isaac and his colleagues found was really revealing. If your baseline starting point is the relationship between Trump and the base that we're familiar with over the past six, seven years, then your takeaway has to be that, yes, it has weakened, he has faded. However, there's a big caveat, which is that he still remains really powerful. Um, His connection with those voters remains really strong. And with the voters who have sort of maybe drifted away from him a little bit. They're in a place right now where a lot of them are open to he could win them back or that someone else could win them over. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, February 23rd. Today, why so many Republicans who love Trump don't necessarily want him to be their nominee in 2024. Isaac shares what he learned about Trump's grip on the GOP base and how it might be slipping, even among his most loyal fans. Can you tell me why it was important to devote the time and energy to fan out across the country and dig into this question of what is Trump's standing with the GOP? Like, what are the stakes here? The stakes here are really, uh, there's a Republican primary, Trump is running, but um, it looks like it's going to be a competitive primary. It wasn't that long ago, a few months ago, before the midterms, um, where Trump really looked like a prohibitive frontrunner. And um, because of how Republicans underperformed in the midterms, and a lot of people blamed Trump for that, it's now looking more like a real race where Trump is at the front of the pack, but there is a pack. And depending on the poll, he's not necessarily number one. And Isaac, which states did you travel to specifically? I personally went to Arizona and Michigan. And... In Michigan, where did you go and who did you speak with? In Michigan, I was there just this past weekend for the state party convention. So uh, it was in the capital of Lansing, but there were Republicans there from all over the state. And it was an interesting group because they are they are party activists. They ran in their local GOPs to become delegates to be there at the convention. Um, but a lot of these delegates are new people, not 
traditional longtime party activists, but people who came into the party just in the past few years, many of them specifically motivated and inspired by Trump's 2020 loss or from from his and their perspective, uh, that election being stolen. One of the people I met was Josiah Jaster, who was the delegation leader from Saginaw County. And he was telling me about how uh, Trump's sway with the base was not what it used to be. Yeah. There were 11 candidates, yeah. so Trump might still be able to sway 10%. Yeah. Doesn't sound like a big sway to me. People were capable of, at once, really liking Trump and really liking his presidency and what he stood for and what he ran on. But that was not the same thing as wanting him to be the nominee again in 2024. We agree on Trump's policies 100%. Our group probably has less blind loyalty to Trump. That's the only difference. Right, because we have less blind Presidential politics have no place in the county. Correct. And that's really what's different now is that option didn't exist before, right? Mm. It's been, for the longest time, it's been like, you're with Trump or you're against Trump. And that was it. So you had your never-Trumpers and your Trumpers. And that was the, like the whole party. And there was no other option. Right. And what's happened, not, not even since he left the White House, but really since the midterms when Republicans did so badly, is there opened up this middle ground where for the first time people could say, yes, we love Trump. He was the great, a great president, the greatest president, have nothing bad to say about Trump. But... That's not the same as wanting him to be the nominee again. And the main reason was electability, concern that he couldn't win. And that was actually something that people could believe at the same time that they would still say the election was stolen. So it's not even that people take issue with any of his positions or even whether they agree with his rhetoric or not. It just really just boiled down to whether they thought he could be successful in a general election. Well, I think it's, it's that they do agree with mm. with his policies and positions, and they like they personally like a lot of things about his personality, but recognize that it's not for everyone, and that a lot of people say like, "Oh, someone less divisive." At the same time, it's not blaming Trump. You know, it's not that Trump did something wrong. It's just that people hate him so much, and they they throw so much at him, and they beat him up so much, and that eventually leads to a conclusion that he might not be the strongest candidate anymore. So who was the person people mentioned the most as the alternative to Trump for the presidency? Not just the most, but basically exclusively, the only other name people mentioned was Ron DeSantis. Mm, the Florida governor. Yes, and sometimes people just called him, yeah, the Florida guy. Like, <laughs> uh, you know, he he did have a national profile in the sense that, like, everyone knew who he was, and he was a, the name on the tip of everybody's tongue. But people didn't seem to know him super well. He didn't uh, he didn't have the kind of devotion that Trump inspired in people. So, what was it about Ron DeSantis then that appealed to people? People liked that he looked like a winner, that he had this huge landslide re-election in Florida, and that made them think that he could appeal to moderates and independents in a way that maybe Trump was struggling to. Well, I'm interested in DeSantis uh-huh. and Trump if he can stop his snide remarks. There was another woman I spoke with in Arizona named Pam Rimel who... Uh, who was telling me about how as much as she liked Trump, she really sounded like she was ready for someone new, and specifically DeSantis, who she thought could be more unifying. 
I think we need somebody yeah, more like the Santas than antagonistic. Because okay. Florida is such a big state, it's pretty diverse. That 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 sort of thinking. Well, and, and historically a swing state. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you win by 60% in what people think of as a swing state, that looks like, oh, hey, you know, that's someone who could, you know, if he can do that nationwide. Mm-hmm. Was there anything about his policies or his politics that appealed to people? I know that Ron DeSantis has sort of created a national profile around some of the like, quote unquote, culture wars. Yeah. And he seems to have established an identity for himself that's independent of Trump, which isn't, you know, it wasn't just about his loyalty to Trump or his relationship to Trump, but people had heard about things that he did for himself and they identified traits in him that reminded him of Trump, the, you know, calling him a fighter or, uh, you know, that he says what he believes and he doesn't back down from it. Joe Biden suggests that if you don't do lockdown policies, then you should, quote, get out of the way. But let me tell you this. If you're coming after the rights of parents in Florida, I'm standing in your way. I'm not going to let you get away with it. DeSantis has really pitched himself as, you know, that he presided over the, quote, free state of Florida. Mm. Um, They didn't shut down businesses when other states did. They didn't do mask and vaccine mandates when other states did. And DeSantis has sort of started to use that as, as an emerging wedge issue if he does go ahead to challenge Trump in the primary. Now, the reality, based on our reporting, is that actually at the time, like DeSantis was hewing pretty closely to Trump's White House policies. There wasn't actually a lot of distance there. But DeSantis has certainly been successful at um, establishing that as part of his brand. After the break, we learn about the remaining influence of the Trump diehards, the voters who say he's the only candidate for them. We'll be right back. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. What did you hear in Arizona, which is the birthplace of the whole Stop the Steal movement? What was the mood among former Trump voters there? Well, I want to emphasize, like, in every place we went, we saw a full range, Mm. that full spectrum that I was describing, but to varying degrees. And so in Arizona, that was at the state party meeting, and that was where we were getting the most voices of people saying that they were with Trump. They wouldn't even think about someone else. DeSantis needed to stay in Florida. He needed to wait his turn. And some of them said that they would even not, if Trump weren't the nominee, they would vote for him as an independent or they would stay home rather than vote for someone else. You know, sometimes when when I met the the more diehard Trump supporters, it wasn't that long of an interview because there weren't too many follow-up questions when someone was just really clear and, and certain that they were voting for him and they wouldn't even entertain other ideas. For example, in Arizona, there was Catherine Upton who said, you know, she wasn't even thinking about other other candidates. He did a magnificent job when he was in and then he got robbed and he's got a, he should have another chance. Okay. 
Um, are there any other candidates who you would consider? No. So what happens if he doesn't win the nomination? But what happens if he didn't? Would you would you support him running as an independent? As an independent? Uh huh. As a party? Well, like if he if he didn't win the Republican nomination and he ran as a free party. Well, he talks about it all the time. And that really is his power over the party to say, you know, you can't win without me. I'll take my people with me, and that, from what we can tell, is still a group, but a smaller group than it used to be. Could Trump be a spoiler then in some places, like if he did run as an independent, because there there are people who would be fo- willing to follow him anywhere? That's his leverage. I mean, that's his that's his kind of tacit threat. And, you know, sometimes he's more explicit about that. Like, you know, he's given interviews where he says he's not committing to support the nominee. And, you know, that is the message that he's sending when he says that is, you know, I'll take my ball and go home. I'll take my base and leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't afford to lose me. And what did people tell you about why they were going to stick behind him no matter what? Mostly um, because they thought that he was robbed and he deserved a second term and uh, that that he was such a good president and he was tested and they wanted back the things that they had when he was president. Mm. I do remember in 2016, there was a sense of, Trump as a candidate cannot win this race and don't nominate Trump among Republicans. And then he got the nomination and then he won. He defied the expectations. He surprised even himself. And is should we all be having this sense of it's foolish to count him out completely and say that he's not electable and have that almost be a foregone conclusion? No one's counting him out, mm. <laughs> right? I mean, no one's out here saying like he doesn't have a chance or he couldn't win. That's why we were doing this reporting. And one of the big takeaways is he does remain extremely popular and extremely formidable. It's like when we're talking about this question of electability, we're trying to like kind of forecast into the future and see who has the best chance. And a lot of that goes into which candidate you back. I I think that played out in 2020 as well, right? On the Democratic side. On the Democratic side, absolutely. You know, Republican primary voters have not shown themselves to prioritize electability the way that Democratic primary voters Mm -hmm. have in recent elections. And I mean, there (laughs) there were some conversations that were especially interesting because people Trump supporters could acknowledge that Trump's endorsements and Trump's influence on the party in 2022 with focusing on election denial hurt them. But that didn't change that they were still supporting Trump for 2024. Mm. Yeah, because several candidates that Trump backed in the 2022 midterms lost, right? Yeah, I mean, specifically in Arizona, those were close races that the Republicans lost. And a big part of that was that to get Trump's endorsement, they had to focus on saying that the 2020 election was stolen. And I remember, in particular, an interesting conversation with uh, with a Trump supporter named Robert Branch in Arizona, who, who was acknowledging that um, he thought that that focus on the 2020 election hurt Republicans in the midterms with candidates talking about that instead of issues that voters cared about. Um, The message that we sent out is a party that wasn't united. The message that we sent out was uh, we're still looking at the 2020 election and how, you know, many believe it was stolen instead of focusing on the issues to get people elected. So... 
that's what I look at. I look at the Democrats being able to take advantage of that. But that didn't concern him uh, in terms of Trump running for president and continuing to emphasize that same issue. And I'm curious about where Trump is right now in his campaign. Is he hearing any of these sort of post-Trump views from voters? Is there anything to suggest that he is adjusting how he's campaigning or trying to win them back? Yeah, I mean, I think what you're seeing from the Trump campaign is like a much more traditional campaign than he's run before. You know, the 2016 Trump campaign was very freewheeling and improvised and didn't do any of the traditional things that a campaign does, basically. And, you know, 2020 was was different because he was president and it was the pandemic. And now he has a, a very professional operation um, that's also very small and playing a very strong kind of inside nuts and bolts political ground game. So kind of using his advantages of having been president and having a lot of the party infrastructure that's kind of used to supporting him from when he was president. And also, um, you know, he hasn't been doing so many rallies. He's been doing a lot more videos that are policy focused so it, it it's hmm. it's sort of an appeal to the people the trump supporters who are out there saying i love everything he did as president i wish he didn't tweet so much well he's talking a lot about his policies and he's not on twitter yeah he's like not in twitter at all right <laughs> like quite literally uh, and, and then how is he feeling about desantis who is emerging as you know in your reporting the person who is on the minds of people who are considering alternatives the most you know in The Godfather when they say it's not personal, it's just business, but that means it's really personal? <laughs> yes, I do, yeah. actually. So uh, based on our reporting, it's really personal <laughs> because uh, Trump's perspective is that he made DeSantis um, when, he in, when he endorsed him for governor in 2018 in the Republican primary. And, you know, not everything that Trump says is exactly how it went down. But in this case, Trump says that DeSantis was crying and begging the crying part, not true. But, Hyperbole a little but bit. But the begging part is not a stretch. I mean, he really, you know, DeSantis won that primary because he got Trump's endorsement and he worked hard to get it. That's what our reporting shows. Um, so Trump's attitude now is kind of like, you know, how dare that guy challenge me? You know, he's a young guy. He could wait his turn and he wants to he wants to make it painful for DeSantis to take him on. Isaac, what do you think your reporting says about the state of the GOP today, where the party stands and what the trajectory of the Republican Party could look like moving forward? Well, I think there was this moment right after the midterms when uh, that red wave that Republicans were expecting didn't materialize. And there was a real moment where we didn't know what was going to be with Trump or the direction of the party. And there were a lot of voices among Republican leaders saying, you know, we need to move on. It's time. Including saying this, you know, this idea that, you know, it's not that we don't like Trump. It's just that we need someone who can win. And we wanted to see in this reporting whether that was just them saying it or whether that was really something that, that they were getting from the voters that the voters were identifying with. And it turned out that that was right. That middle ground that opened up to still like Trump but not be sold on Trump for 2024 is a real thing. At the same time, it's also become clear that the lesson Republicans are taking from the midterms is not like to do away with the policy priorities and the political style of the MAGA movement. Um, 
and to attack back toward the center. Um, we're, we're not seeing a lot of signs of that. So even if Trump voters, even if the Republican base is loosening its attachment to Trump himself, it's still the party that he refashioned in his image. Isaac, thank you so much for sharing your reporting with us. Thanks for having me. Isaac Arnsdorf is a national political reporter for The Post. He reported this story alongside Josh Dossey, Hannah Knowles, Yvonne Wiggett Sanchez, Patrick Marley, and Ashley Parker. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Savvy Robinson with help from Ariel Plotnick. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. For more political reporting like this, subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Amazon Prime member, you can now listen to our show ad-free on Amazon Music. So check us out there. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Class is in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.